0: Well good morning. I um let me just ask the Lord to help us and uh I want to I got a message I want to jump into this morning. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for what you've given us in your word. Father, we thank you for it. We're so grateful that you could have left us uh without guidance and clarity in the verses just read, but we thank you that you have given us your word, that you've spoken to us. We ask you to speak to us this morning through each and every speaking and every exposition on your word. I ask you to bring things to mind that we have not even planned or considered before, but things that we need to hear in the moment. And so we ask for that grace and that anointing on everything spoken today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I want to kind of introduce a subject And uh, the title of what I want to talk about is a gospel-centered approach to Israel. And uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because when you start considering the end of the age, some of these, honestly, epic passages, the story of Israel is right in the middle of these passages, meaning uh, Israel's story is not yet resolved there are actually things that must be resolved related to her her story, and we need to understand those things and why they are. And that's not I, I can't break all that down this morning. Some of that's in the book, and 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 again, just in the scriptures, we can find that. But uh, but I do want to talk about the desperate need for a gospel centered approach to this subject, and that's going to become more and more important. The closer we get into the end of the age. You know, when, when you read the Bible, there's there's two very clear signs that we're told have to play out before Jesus returns. One of them is the evangelization of the nations or the gospel going into all the nations, right? And we are in the first generation in history where that's a possibility. It's never been possible before, thanks to Google Maps. We now know where everyone is on the planet, which is also frightening, but, but from a missional perspective, at least, we know we can now, we now actually know the extent of the work. There's a lot of work to be done. I was telling someone this weekend, there's over a billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus, still, or they've heard Isa from a Quranic perspective, but have never heard a witness of the biblical Jesus, okay, so... So there's a lot of work to, to, to be done, and guess what? The, in some ways, the most difficult parts of the earth are still ahead of us, just because that's just the way it works. You, you know, the gospel spread more quickly into some other parts of the world. So, uh, but, so, so the task is significant, but we're at the first point in history where it's possible that within a generation, whatever that means we could possibly complete the gospel. The other thing, if you take the Bible literally, so not only is that, the only thing is some sort of crisis around the city of Jerusalem that touches the ends of the earth, touches multiple nations. The, the prophets prophesy about the nations getting caught up in a Jerusalem-centered conflict. Now, there's been there have been conflicts around Jerusalem Literally, for centuries, with a nation, Babylon, Rome, etc., but not the nations. And even a hundred years ago, if we were having a, this conference on the end times, we would probably interpret most of those verses figuratively. Not because we don't love the Bible, we would just go, That's unimaginable that all the nations would be caught up around Jerusalem. That makes no sense. And, say, and I just say that to because we've got to be gracious with some of uh, the fathers and mothers in church history who didn't really speak about this subject because 200 years ago, we would have thought that's impossible. You know, just the idea that the nations be caught up in Jerusalem, it's been almost 2,000 years. I think that means something else. But we now stand at the first point in history when all the nations care about Jerusalem. I mean, to us, I think it's easy to miss because you read the Bible, there's Israel. It's, it's a central part of the story. But we can easily forget that when Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, the vast majority of the world did not care. It wasn't on the news feed. <laughs> right? When Rome did what Rome did, in the first, second century uh, AD, most of the planet did not care. Wasn't even aware. Wasn't even in their thinking. We actually now stand in the first moment in history where the nations care for no logical reason. Like, I don't know if you've been there. If you haven't, we go every year, so come. I'd love for you to come with us. But there's no oil there, at least so far. Maybe there's something they hadn't found, but it's not... It's not like it's an oil issue. That's why we care about some other countries pretty intensely. But it's not like there's oil there. It's not like the world economy and banking depends on it. It's not London, New York, Hong Kong, Singapore, Beijing. It's it's not the center of commerce in that way. There is no rational human reason that all the nations are so fixated on the city of Jerusalem. You could say, well, it's the humanitarian issue of the Palestinians. That's a big issue to get sorted out. However, not to to be dismissive, there are much bigger humanitarian crises in the earth that we don't give near the attention to for various reasons. So we have to ask, why do we live in the generation where go to Australia, go to Korea, (laughs) come to this country, go anywhere in the world— and governments have opinions related to Jerusalem. Like that should that actually is one of the strongest apologetics for the word of god because it makes no logical sense. Why in the world are we fixated on that when there's so many other places in the earth. So we live in the first generation and if we take the bible seriously it actually says Jerusalem's going to become more controversial. It's, it's going to become a more intense subject, and that's why we desperately need, I like to call it a Jesus-centered or a gospel-centered or honestly just a biblical perspective of the subject. And that's what I want to provoke you this morning and, and maybe make a few points to provoke you to, to search this out. When we think about Israel, particularly in this country, we tend to first think politically. Politically. It's what's my political position. And we live in a political world and we don't escape politics. So that's, that's part of the, the realm we live in. But I want to, to, want to kind of provoke you to think biblically before we think politically. It's part of our world, but it's not the first thing. And then secondly, think missionally. Here's what I mean by that. Do you realize Israel is an unreached nation? like I don't know I don't know if y'all are aware of things like Joshua Project and things where we map people groups I think many of you have been very involved or very connected to world missions do you realize that Israel whether you want to go with Jewish population or the Arab Israeli population so pick your people group or unreached people groups now I I'm not I know there's there's, there's, there's different ways of defining that, you know, so it's not in the sense of a people group that has no access to Scripture in their language, but the point is statistically an unreached, meaning usually defined as the church is so small without external strength it doesn't, uh, it can't advance. Statistically unreached. Six million or so Jewish inhabitants, the biggest number is 20,000 followers of Jesus. So we have an unreached nation, and I bet has never come up in a single missions conversation you've been a part of. I'm guessing. Maybe not. But that's been my experience. And a nation that hosts literally millions of followers of Jesus every year, coming and going, in and out. And how many of those in and out have been touched with the burden for the gospel? In other words, have we even spent as much time thinking about Israel's need of the gospel as we have perhaps, perhaps her need of political whatever? So I'm, so I'm just—we need to—we need a—we need a biblical reorientation of our priorities. And I want to look at that uh, this morning. My my question this morning is not so much do we you know, should we support Israel or not? But my question is, what, uh, how do we support it and what does it mean? And I'm going to kind of leave you with three questions and we'll try to come back around to these. But the first one would be, what does it actually mean to support Israel biblically? What, what, what does that mean? Because people always say, do you support Israel? I support Israel. Okay, what does that mean? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Secondly, I want to ask, what does it mean to bless Israel? Because I constantly hear this phrase thrown around. We should bless Israel. Okay, I don't disagree, but what does it mean by that? And then those two set the stage. I think for the third question is, what does it mean for the church to actually be an, an intercessor for Israel? Now, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna jump in in Romans chapter nine, but uh, let me let me say a first a few things first. We have to grasp that God's interactions with Israel are intended to reveal who He is and who we are. Here's what I mean by that. One of the great accusations in the world against God is that He's really hard to find and really hard to grasp. You've probably heard that. Despite the fact that He's revealed Himself in His Son, He's revealed Himself by preserving His Word in an astounding way, And biblically, I could argue, he reveals himself actually in the church, meaning what he does in the church is only explainable through God. But there's another way that God actually reveals or instructs the nations in the gospel, and that actually is through the story of Israel. God's interactions with Israel, Israel's responses to God, are actually one of the ways God reveals the gospel. And I would encourage you to search this out a little bit, but I'll give you just a short example. According to our gospel, God creates the earth, God creates all the creatures, and then he picks one creature, man, gives him a priestly calling. What's the story of Israel? God owns the nations, he made them all, and he picked a nation and gave it a priestly calling. So what happens with humans? God gives them a few simple rules. Basically, don't eat that. <laughs> and what happens with Israel? Though there's more than one, if you read the rules, the rules sound fairly straightforward. Right? Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't sleep with the wrong people. Don't eat certain stuff. It's, you read them individually, it's like, it's not that intense. We could all do that. Humanity violates the rules. And such judgment and death into motion, Israel violates the rules and such judgment and the death of the nation into motion. Right? So, how does God respond to humanity? I'll become a human. How does He respond to Israel's crisis? I'll become an Israelite. Right? Humanity keeps trying in their own strength to secure our future. We're still trying. Israel, for centuries, has tried in her strength, and she's trying at this very moment with everything she has to secure her future. But salvation, of course, comes when we come to the end of our strength and we actually allow God to secure our future. I mean, that's the gospel. Well, Israel's got to come. She has not yet come to the end of her strength for God to secure her future. Does that makes sense. So there's really there's there's even layers you can I'm just gonna if you want to study that out, there's layers you can go into that story. But even when we think of humanity, millions of humans are lost. That's the tragedy that Tom was just speaking about. But humanity won't be lost. I mean, there's gonna be a day with a redeemed creation, a resurrected humanity, God will have saved humanity, though humans are lost. And in the same way, a day must come when God saves Israel, though the great agony is that millions of Israelites have been lost. This is why Israel's story is so important. It has to end a certain way because it's God preaching the gospel. We look at Israel's rebellion and God's going, that's a mirror. This is your rebellion. We look at God's judgment, we go... Okay, he's serious about judging the nations. We look at God's mercy. Okay, you're serious about mercy. So it's very important that we grasp kind of the story of Israel correctly. And I'm going to give you kind of two things that are significant for that, and then we will look at Romans chapter nine. The first is the covenants of the Bible. Okay, God, God has entered into covenant with humans in several distinct moments in in history and when you grasp those covenants those help you actually grasp how he relates how he relates to Israel okay and the the, the reason I mention that is because uh, I would encourage you that to, to grasp Israel properly you have to get into the prophets just to be on it that's those parts of the Bible that we tend to skip a little bit some not skip but maybe we we don't read as much as we do maybe the New Testament, but I would encourage dig in the prophets. And here's why. We assume that the prophets are kind of just sitting there at church on Sunday, bam, God gives them something and they go, whoa, Israel, you're in trouble. But that's only partially true. I mean, we, we assume their prophecies are what we would call a word of knowledge. The Lord gave me something, I'd, no way I could have known that and I spoke it. But when you read the prophets carefully, you'll notice that the Lord spoke to them. But what the prophets were doing was applying Bible verses. Meaning they spoke out of what had been revealed in Scripture up to that point. I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 9. First part of the chapter, Daniel is praying. He's in intercession over Jerusalem. He's burdened because of the destruction of his people in his city. And it's very interesting when he's praying, he doesn't say that strange prophetic word you gave Ezekiel came to pass. He says, everything has happened to us that was written down in the book of Moses. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm recognizing that the Bible verses are shaping and framing our situation. In many ways, what the prophets did, I'm not saying the Lord did not speak because the Lord did speak. And in certain cases, he gave them pieces of information. But their overall framework was applying Bible verses in their generation. And we need to understand those Bible verses. In fact, I'll say it. People say, well, what does it take to be prophetic? I would say, I think we need to soak ourselves in the Bible, actually. We've got this wrong idea that prophetic means just wait until a piece of information no one's ever heard comes. And my the Lord does use what I would call the word of knowledge, and he does sometimes give information. But when you look at the prophets, the vast majority of it is an application of Scripture in their generation. And that's what we need again. How do we apply Scripture in our generation? That's actually at the heart of what it means to be, to be prophetic. And I believe the, the Lord has graciously restored what, uh, in many ways, restored or I would say reemphasized in this part of the world, the gifts of the Holy Spirit through charismatic renewal and other things in the last 40, 50 years. But I believe he also wants to restore this perspective that to be prophetic is more than to have a word of knowledge. I'm not being dismissive of the word of knowledge, but there's a whole other realm of from the authority of Scripture we speak. We could argue that John the Baptist, if not the greatest prophet, is among the greatest because of Jesus' evaluation. Isn't it interesting he'd never made a new prediction? Now, my point's not despising prediction. Please don't... uh, nor did he do any miracles, and we need miracles. I'm not despising miracles. But isn't it interesting that the Lord could evaluate him that way when what he basically did was speak Bible verses with unction and with anointing? I mean, think about it. I mean, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah and Malachi, seemingly primarily, with the sermon fragments we have. We don't have the full podcast, but we've got a few excerpts. In other words, John the Baptist stood up and said Bible verses that were being read in the synagogue every year. But the difference was he brought them and people said, now, what do I do? How do I respond? And Jesus goes, no other guy has exceeded him. Moses, Daniel, Isaiah, Deborah, throw the whole lot in there. So there's something to this application of the word of God at a moment in history under the anointing of God that's incredibly important. And it's actually and actually for me, this was what began to lift the fog for me over Israel is years ago a man started breaking down to me, take you can take the Bible verses seriously. Like or literally is a loaded phrase, but but literally, really. Because I was stuck, I'm like, we're having, we love Israel conventions at my church, but Israel doesn't love Jesus, and the rabbi is speaking, but he doesn't really like Jesus. And yes, they're part of the story, so I'm not anti that. But wait a minute, and he went, no, no, read the prophets, beloved, but there's still issue. Oh, wait a minute, the Bible verses are, we can take them literally. So you. We need to grasp the Bible verses, the covenants. And the second thing I just want to mention and then move on to Romans chapter 9 is we need to grasp the jealousy of God. We, when God describes his relationship to Israel, he describes it as a jealous husband. It's impossible to grasp how God relates to Israel unless you get into the subject of the jealousy of God meaning he's made covenant and he's got strong emotions related to it. I'll give you just three passages for that it would be Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, and Hosea chapter 2. I just encourage you to read those chapters because those chapters still apply even at this day. Okay, let's look at at Romans uh, chapter 9. I just want to pull a, f- a few thoughts from the Apostle Paul right here, beginning in verse number 1. Verse number one, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Verse two, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse three, for I should wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, now Romans chapter nine, verse one is one of the most bizarre verses in all of Paul's writings to me at least. Could you imagine if Sunday morning, your pastor gets up and says, okay, today I'm going to speak the truth. Like, well, we don't have any, like, we're hoping that's what we do every week. I mean, this is an apostle, right? This, This is an apostolic foundational man, and he says, I'm going to now tell you the truth. It's like, well, what have we done for eight chapters, right? Like, 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 what a strong statement. Then he says, I'm not lying. Now we have a second bold statement. Again, just try to get it in your mind. The pastor stands up and says, we're going to speak the truth today. You go, that's a little strange, but okay, I get it. You're going to preach the truth. You're, you're telling us you have a strong word for us. Then he says, and by the way, I'm not, gonna, I'm not lying. You're like, Okay. Like, what, what? what is the point you're trying to make? Paul goes further. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the apostles got three affirmations that he's about to deliver a true word. That should make us go, what in the world are you trying to say to us that you feel that there's nowhere else in his letters that he felt the need to make this kind of statement. And quite honestly, again, Sunday morning, pastor gets up, makes those statements. We go, what is going on? Like, of course you speak the truth to us. Of course you don't lie to us when you deliver the word. And why do you have to convince us that the Holy Spirit is in agreement with what you're saying? So what Paul's saying is, take my words literally. Don't don't take this as kind of an emotional thing. Don't take this as a figurative statement. But actually take my words as the word of the Lord. And when he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying the Lord agrees with what I'm about to say. Or to say it another way, he's saying this is the Lord's burden. Because he's about to speak Related to Israel, and it'd be easy for us to say, well, of course, Paul's a Jewish apostle, so they're his people. So, of course, he'd maybe use some strong words or share some emotions because they're his people. But this is a foundational apostolic man. There's a sense in which his teaching transcends his Jewishness as instructions for the churches. And he's saying the Lord himself agrees with what I'm about to say. This is the Lord's burden. It's not just a, a little thing related to Paul. In verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, if Israel's story didn't matter anymore, why would Paul write to a predominantly Gentile congregation and say, I'm in great sorrow? And the Greek words Paul uses here for unceasing anguish guess what? <laughs> that's what they mean. Meaning the word unceasing means it never stops. So what he's saying is, when I have revival meetings in Corinth, that's not enough to get rid of this. When Ephesus turned, and I did, quote, unusual miracles, whatever that means, that wasn't enough to remove the... the unceasing nature of my pain. The word Paul uses there for anguish means mental, physical, and emotional pain. The only way I know to grasp it is maybe when you have a crisis in your family, a death in your family, something you can go, I don't really want to go eat right now. I don't, like your whole body kind of, your whole frame comes under a dullness. I don't want to, like, My emotions are down, my body's down, my brain hurts, even though there's not really anything I have to think about. And Paul's saying that this is his condition related to Israel, and he's saying this is actually the burden of the Lord related to Israel. He's saying it's so intense that, verse 3, that if, if it were possible that he could lay down his own salvation for them to enter in, he would. That is a massive statement. You can see the echoes of Moses' intercession when he wrestled with the Lord when Israel was apostate. And he said, okay, Lord, you said you won't go with us? Fine. I'm going to put myself on the line for the sake of Israel. Cut me off if you're going to cut them off. And isn't it interesting that God takes this kind of man and sows him to the Gentiles? Because I don't think any of our mission committees would have done this. You get a, a missions candidate like this, that brother needs to go to Israel, not be spread among the Gentiles. But there's something beautiful there that the Lord goes, actually, the burden that's in you, I want you to go impart it to the Gentiles. And I think the Lord's also making a statement Israel and the nations are connected. So Paul, take your burden for Israel and grow, go grow in love and affection for the Gentiles. Because the man that was in anguish over Israel is going to end up in prison for the Gentiles, suffering for the Gentiles, and growing in love for Greek young men that politically were the oppressors of his people. I think we sometimes forget that Paul actually went and labored, and suffered, and died for the people that he would have considered oppressors. And politically, they they were. And isn't it interesting that Paul's not actually primarily, he's not actually burdened over Israel's political dilemma. How are we going to work things out with Rome? Paul's got a deeper anguish in his soul about Israel's connectedness to the to the messiah. And the reason I the reason I want to bring this verse to your attention is I've heard endless perspectives of Israel, teaching of Israel, ideas about Israel, but I've heard very little anguish over Israel. And that's the apostolic value. That's the apostolic burden over Israel. Paul Paul's response to this anguish begins in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, where he goes, My heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel would be saved. Now I, I know you love Israel and you pray for Israel, which is beautiful. We need to take on that Paul, Paul's Romans 10, verse 1 burden, that when we pray for Israel, are we primarily interceding for her salvation, which is her issue? Israel's political situation is not her primary problem. It's just not. When you read Bible verses, guess what? Israel always ends up in political pressure when God's trying to speak to her. So it's easy for us to say, well, Israel's under pressure because there's anti-Semitism in the world. There's this in the world. There's all these other things. And yes, we're in a fallen world. But when you read Bible verses... God allows pressure on Israel to provoke Israel to turn to Him. It doesn't mean God's okay with all the animosity. God deals with it. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Guess what? There's no more Babylon. But in the generation when Babylon was putting pressure on Israel, God spoke very clearly, the pressure is on you to cause you to cry out for deliverance. In a sense, to break your strength, your confidence that you can deliver yourself. And the same God of the 6th and 7th century BC is the same God now. And he still, even in this moment, is allowing Israel to be put under pressure to provoke her to actually cry out for deliverance and salvation. It's the complexity of the way God works, right? God has been very gracious to Israel, which is obvious. She went from nowhere to a first world economy in a few decades. Stunning. There's only a few nations in the earth that have done that. Only a small, small number of nations have done that. I can actually only think of one more. Which is, which is Singapore, and it has a pretty intense Israel connection. I can't actually think of another nation. There probably is one that goes from no nation to nation to first world economy in a few decades. That's just inconceivable. Israel has survived multiple military conflicts, usually outnumbered, and quite honestly, supernaturally preserved. The kindness of God's very apparent... But we have to enter into the tension that the kindness of God and the discipline of God operates at the same time. He's not like us, or I'm mad at you, but I'm happy with you. <laughs> like No, he, all his emotions function at the same time. So Israel supernaturally preserved and constantly harassed all at the same time. Well, that doesn't mean, again, my point's not that the harassment's okay. The Lord will sort that out. He's always sorted it out. But he's always told us that he uses that for his purposes in the mystery of his sovereign leadership. So Israel's biggest problem is actually not her harassers. Israel's biggest problem is her God. Our biggest problems are not scandals, Russia, whatever else, our biggest problems are how we relate to God as a culture and as a people, and that's way more—I uh, guess I would say it—way, uh, way more intense, I guess, as a word with Israel because of her unique history. So, God, Israel's biggest challenge is her God. So, here's the question: As the Church. Are we entering into God's jealous pursuit of Israel? Because this, this really is sets up some of the main themes and conflicts at the end of the age. God, God's going to allow the pressure on Israel to intensify to an extent that has never happened before, to finally bring Israel to a point of salvation. Now He's bringing that in. That, that, that's going to happen in all the nations. I love the phrase, what God does in Israel, he does in a lesser manner in the rest of the nation. So he's intensifying the whole planet. But he's going to finally bring Israel to the end of her strength, not to destroy her, but to cause a cry for salvation to come out. And the Lord even describes that time as, then they're going to look on me, the one they've pierced, and I'm going to release grace For a supplication, just a fancy word that basically means repentance. And we're going to be reunited the same way Joseph and his brothers were. So Israel's end time pressure is not for Israel's destruction, but we need to have an awareness that it's not just the rage of the nations, though the Lord is exposing the rage of the nations. But he's going to use the the rage of the nations for his own agenda related to Israel's salvation. Just like he'll use the rage of the nations related to the salvation of the Gentiles. It's going to cause us to come out as a a mature people. And let me say this, if you've studied Israel's end time trouble, you can go, this is unbelievable. Like, the words are pretty strong. We have no, I, I said this the first night, we have no grasp of what's coming. Satan's going to get let loose on the planet for the final conflict. Israel's stuck in the middle, but that's not really the issue. The real issue is Israel's God, more specifically Israel's uh, uh, God's Messiah. That's the real conflict—is over him ruling and reigning and transitioning to the next age. So there's going to be an unparalleled conflict. If Israel's going to be under pressure, and we've been grafted into Israel and called to provoke Israel, guess what? You you're not going to provoke Israel by going, man. It's it's really, It's really sad. You guys have a rough situation. What provokes them is we have passed through trouble and pressure and fire and opposition, and the Lord preserved us, and delivered us, and redeemed us. I've got a feeling that there's a crisis for the Gentile church to pass through that we haven't quite anticipated. For us to actually provoke Israel in the middle of an end time crisis. What provokes you is someone who passed through your trial ahead of you and can look at you and call you forth. It's not provoking necessarily when you're in trouble to have a guy who's never passed through trouble give you Bible verses. It feels condescending, to be honest. Yeah, great for you, you know, but you haven't passed through this suffering. But, as the church in the nations grafted into Israel's blessing and Israel's trouble, we don't get to pick. To be able to look to Israel and go, no, we've passed through trials in the nations, pressure in the nations, the rejection of the nations, and the Lord has been faithful to us, and and brought us through. And the Lord's going to do that in a pretty, pretty, uh, in a pretty powerful way, specifically for Israel. Let's look at a couple other verses that Paul uses in uh, Romans uh, ch- uh, chapter ten. I just want to leave leave a couple thoughts with you before I before I end the session. Our number one assignment related to Israel is to actually provoke her to return to her God. That's our number one assignment. And I'll say this, because of that, I like to say this, the answer, God's primary answer right now to Israel's crisis is a vibrant church, a vibrant church filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God speaking to Israel about her God. This is Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 19 to 21. I'm not, I'm not going to do those verses in detail just for the sake of time. But in that, Paul summarizes our assignment and says, this is what's meant to happen among the Gentiles, that they enter into provoking Israel to return. In other words, what Paul's saying is, we've been given Israel's inheritance in a sense. What was Israel's promise? She's the only nation in the earth with the presence of the living God in her midst. Guess what? The church is the only people in the earth, not even apostate Israel anymore, that has the presence of the living God in her midst. She was given the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling in her forever. That was first given to Israel. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Joel 2. And guess what? The Lord's poured out the Holy Spirit dwelling in the midst of Gentiles. God's setting up this moment when Israel goes, wait a minute, we're under pressure. We don't have any more answers. Why is the presence of our God among these people that are outside the covenant? Why are you experiencing our inheritance? Why is our, the Spirit promised to us moving among you? That's what Paul's... And Paul says this is what was said from the very beginning. Moses actually made this statement in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, when he said, here's what's going to happen. He prophesied to Israel. God says, you are going to provoke me to anger and jealousy by going to other gods. Again, it's marriage analogy. You're going to go somewhere else. I'm going to get angry and jealous. God says, so fine. Fine we would expect the next phrase to be, I'll destroy you, right? Jealous husband, fine. But instead, he goes, guess what? I'll make you angry and make you jealous. If you're going to go to other gods, I'll go to another people. But what Paul breaks down is God's going to another people is intended to stir up a jealousy That is intended her to go, wait a minute. This was our promise. So they return. The the analogy I always use is is it's the if you've got two children, you buy something for the older child, you buy a toy, they play with it, love it. But what happens is they get a little bit older, they stop playing with it, it sits in the box or in the corner, And, and they don't they don't even care about it. They've moved on. But then one day emerges when the younger brother gets a little older and he lays his hand on that toy. Have you ever seen this? All of a sudden, a new sense of ownership wells up. That's mine. And you're and the parents like, give me a break. You haven't played with that in four years. You don't even that's mine. It was given to me. Why does he have it? That Paul's basically saying God's intended this cosmic game of jealousy. Because in the process, he'll get both children, he'll get Israel and the nations which is what he always told Abraham. This is for the sake of the nations. So my story with Israel is going to get the nations. My story with the nations is going to grab Israel. So our ultimate calling is to provoke Israel. We need to enter into the tension of Israel's condition. This is Romans chapter 11, verse 28. Paul says this about Israel. As regards the gospel... This is a sobering phrase. They are enemies of God for your sake. What a phrase that should provoke tears. Paul's, and Now, Paul's not speaking of every Jewish person, okay? Paul's one. All the early apostles were, were Jewish. He's saying as a nation, because of her unique calling, okay? So this is not all every people in that people group. But he says, as far as the gospel, they're actually enemies. As a nation, they've resisted it. And Paul goes, this is actually for your sake. In other words, this tragic story has actually caused the gospel to go out into the nations. So he's saying, be grateful. Don't be arrogant. Be grateful. But here's, so the tension is right now an enemy of the gospel, but as regards election, meaning God's choosing of them for a redemptive purpose, they remain beloved. That's our tension with Israel. Enemy of the gospel. Again, he's talking about a collective, all right, Not every individual. There is a remnant of believers, just like there's remnant in other people groups, but still beloved. In other words, God's going. I didn't pick them because they were a holy people, and I haven't rejected them because they're an unholy people. It's it's on the salvation is on the basis of God's desire and God's longing for Israel. So sympathy for Israel's condition must though we have sympathy for Israel's condition we must keep in mind that Israel's situation her crisis is ultimately due to her relationship with God. Now let me answer let me come back to the three questions in the beginning and then I want to I want to pray for you which is we need to wrestle with what does it mean to support Israel biblically? Why do we have an unreached people group with free and open access, millions of Christian uh, engagement every year? And we're not even talking about it at a missional perspective. I'll say this, I don't have time to prove it. The end, the final finish line for world missions is actually not every tribe and tongue. If you read the Bible verses, the final finish line is actually the people of Israel. That's the final finish line for world for world missions. We need to realize what does it mean to support is Israel biblically. Where is the witness of the church in the middle of Israel? In the Bible, any time Israel tries to secure her own destiny, meaning obtain her promises, through political alliances rather than repentance, God says Israel's apostate. Do we grasp that we're watching Israel right in front of us, trying to secure her promises in her future by every possible political means with no national repentance? What does it mean that on the date of her 70th anniversary, which is a statement of the faithfulness of God to Israel, the only story in the nations was Israel is linking arms in a new way with a superpower? And there was no statement about the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, the repentance of Israel. I think God's trying to make a statement to us and will revealing this is Israel's condition. So as the church, we need to respond to that condition and not just say, well, she's getting some political help. We need to say, wait a minute. The Lord's being kind to her, but in his kindness, he's exposing she's still grasping for political solutions. She's still trying to use the nations to accomplish what God promised her, which biblically we call that adultery. When we take what the husband's supposed to provide and we go somewhere else to get it. That's what's happening. Now, it's a mirror because all, all the nations are doing it, but we need to recognize that. Again, I would encourage you to read Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23. That story is playing out right now. Okay. Number two, what does it mean to to bless Israel? Israel's blessing to the nations is really the gospel, right? God's plan through Israel has brought us the gospel. Therefore, our primary blessing back to Israel needs to be to deliver the gospel back to her. It is irresponsible to affirm Israel's covenant but not deliver the gospel to her. That's irresponsible to say, God has chosen you for a purpose. He still loves you. He's still in covenant and skip the gospel part because you're you're keeping from Israel the one thing necessary for her to actually enter into those promises. And particularly in this nation, we've had way too much. Israel, God likes you. He loves you. There's a future for you. He's going to do this and that for you, but not going. However, the way to achieve and enter into your promises, has to pass through Jesus. There is no other way. Paul would not be okay with that. Paul would look at us and say, guys, I labored to get you a gospel so you would speak to my people. He'll say, I took the big uncomfortable risk of leaving my people group, the Jews, to go preach to you guys, who I didn't have a lot of nice thoughts about. Until Jesus gave me nice thoughts. You were my oppressors. He'd look at us and say, would you return the favor? And not just say, you're awesome, you're chosen, but say, you have to enter in through the gospel. Your strength is not going to save you. Which gets us to the third question, which I'll end with, is what do, we need to wrestle with what does it mean to be an intercessor for Israel? And by that I mean as a corporate church. I'm not just saying there's a few people with that assignment. That's an assignment given to the Gentiles. Remember, I defined an intercessor as someone who steps in to create a meeting between two people that are at odds. Well, guess what? God and Israel are at odds. I got lots of Bible verses. But God wants to resolve the situation and he's invited us into the story. Step in the gap. Begin to contend. When we think about Blessing Israel, supporting Israel, all these things, we need to think of intercession for Israel, meaning how do we bring Israel into a meeting with her God again? He's going to let her situation get way more intense than it is right now. But again, not for the purposes of Israel's destruction, but for the purposes of her salvation. But as long as she's got confidence that she can do it, make a few alliances and survive, and I'll just, I'll make this, this, final statement, we kind of get our head in terms of, well, Israel under pressure. We want to stand with the Jews. We have the World War II mindset. That day is coming. But if you read the Bible carefully, that is the very end of the end. The verses before that talk about Israel being strong, prosperous, thinking she doesn't need help. We need to begin to learn how do we address Israel where we speak to the nations. Hey, don't get arrogant. God's working with them even if they're apostate. That's the kindness of God because we were all born apostate. So we, we have to speak to the nations about the calling election of Israel. And that's going to become one of the most controversial messages imaginable. But then how do we turn to Israel and go, okay, but God has a controversy with you as well. And we want to see you come into salvation. So I just want to close with that. I just want to pray for you quickly that God would make us intercessors for Israel according to the a full biblical paradigm that we would not be primarily burdened by a threat from another nation or the challenges she faces, but we would be burdened by her, like the Apostle Paul, with her relationship with her God and the resolution. When that gets resolved, the rest of it's done. Read the prophets. God will wipe out everything when it's done. Everyone's pawned. I like to say at the end of the age, the nations are pawns, you know that word, in God's jealous pursuit of Israel. Okay, so once he gets her, he'll he'll settle the deck with the nations. Okay, so that's not my point. But my point is we've got to grasp what he's doing at the moment in time we're at, and not just act as if Israel's come into her promises when she hasn't yet. We need to contend for them. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the jealous God. That you're not without emotions and desires. Oh, we thank you, that, you that, that your jealousy over Israel is a picture to your jealousy over us. We thank you that you are that way. We thank you that the God who chose Israel out of your own desire remains committed to Israel out of your own desire. Because that tells us you're committed to us out of your own desire and not out of our own ability and our own righteousness. So Father, we thank you that this is who you are. We, we just give thanks that you've brought us into this story. And God, I ask, would you give us the Romans 9 anguish? We can't, we can't work it up. We can't try to stir up enough emotions or fanfare. We need your own burden from your own heart. And that's what we ask for. Would you give us what the Apostle Paul had, the burden of the Lord, Because we know he did not have that burden until he saw you in Acts chapter 9. Before that, he was quite content with Israel. But once he saw you, he was burdened. God, we ask, would you give us that burden that we'd enter into intercession, whether that means prayer meetings, whether it means speaking the gospel to a Jewish person that you bring in our path, whether it means supporting uh, the expansion of the gospel into that land and that region, whatever expression it takes, God, we ask, give us your burden. And let us be a corporate intercessor, joined with your heart for the salvation of Israel. In Jesus' name, amen.